Hello, my name is Bay Logan, and welcome to this DVD edition of Once Upon a Time in China 2, the second in uh, the Wong Fei Hong films that were directed and produced by Choi Hark, maverick genius Hong Kong filmmaker. And uh, these movies really uh, brought back the period kung fu movie to prominence in Hong Kong cinema because it had kind of come and gone over the years. There'd been this huge boom of interest in the 50s and 60s with the black and white martial arts and fantasy swordplay pictures. And then in the, in the 70s and up into the 80s, kung fu comedy had been very popular with Jackie Chan and Sammo Hong as the pioneers of those films. And uh, then in the 90s, suddenly a new hero came in the form of Jet Li, who was introduced in uh, the first Wong Fei Hong movie, and that started a whole new wave in these period Chinese martial arts pictures. And here we have a typically Choi Hark esoteric opening for the film with this little girl who's representing the White Lotus cult, who are you know the prime... Uh, antagonists of the movie. You notice her shoes with those little cups on. It's actually an element of Chinese uh, tradition in terms of generating magical powers that the practitioner's feet should never touch the ground. And it's an element of a fight later in the film that uh, the, uh, there's a battle between Wong Fei Hong and some of the White Lotus Kung Fu players. And the Kung Fu players are trying to make sure that they don't touch the ground. And Wong Fei Hong is trying to knock away the tables and chairs. So that's like a, a genuine element of folklore that's brought into, uh, into this film. And here we see a demonstration of this supposedly the qigong, the internal energy, which uh, these uh, cult members develop through their following this particular religion and practicing these esoteric martial arts skills. And then reading there is Hong Yan Yan. Hong Yan Yan himself was another wushu champion like Jet Li and uh, worked on the first uh, Wong Fei Hong movie. He did some stunt work and doubling and, and played, a small, played several supporting roles. And he was rewarded for his efforts by playing like the White Lotus cult leader in this film. And uh, later in the third movie, he's introduced as a character in his own right. Hong Yan Yan plays clubfoot, Guai Gok Chut, and has gone on to um, a, a kind of star in numerous other films and became an action director uh, in the West, firstly with the movie Double Team with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And uh, recently, at the time of speaking, he was the action director on D'Artagnan, this uh, uh, new uh, version of The Three Musketeers, which has lots of uh, Once Upon a Time in China-style action with like ladders and flying around and, and fantastic sword play. And the opening scene here is, is rather reminiscent of the opening of an old Shaw Brothers movie by Lao Galeng, which was called uh, Legendary Weapons of Shaolin. And it also introduced this cult who uh, developed the, the loyalty of their followers by demonstrating these supernatural powers that they supposedly have by virtue of their faith and by virtue of their belief in this particular cult. And uh, the highest level is that you can withstand... Uh, gunfire, that the human body can withstand a bullet. And this was of particular importance politically during this period of Chinese history because uh, much of China was under Western domination, particularly the treaty ports, and uh, major cities were controlled by the foreign powers. And the main uh, thing that the foreign... Even though the, the, the Chinese had uh, invented gunpowder, the foreign powers were far more heavily armed. Their battle cruisers were far more heavily armed than the equivalent Chinese vessels. So um, gunpowder was kind of represented the power of the West. So the idea that an ancient Chinese 
uh, system of training could develop the human body to the level that you could withstand gunpowder or gunfire was uh, very appealing politically. And, of course, as we find later, it's, a f- it's faked. And uh, this actually, the, the thing that, uh, that makes this film uh, different to many other sequels in Hong Kong movies, and in fact maybe American action movie sequels, is that it not only um, f- follows up the elements of the first movie, but actually expands on them and develops the idea. Because in the first film, uh, we have a character who's got incredible kung fu power, which is Iron Robe Yim. And in the end, he falls to the foreign guns. And the last line he says to Wong Fei Hong, which is with great pathos, is, you know, kung fu cannot withstand the, the foreign guns, cannot withstand bullets. And this film expands on that by having this white lotus chief who claims he has developed the power to do so, and later we realize he's a fraud. And the theme of the film is the first movie really looked at the issue of Chinese identity in the face of a changing century. And uh, this is a beautiful shot, and uh, I'll just break into my commentary for a moment here as we as we see this beautiful cranger, Arthur Wong. Well, Arthur Wong, one of my favorite one of the great uh, cinematographers who has worked and is still working in Hong Kong, and uh, he's he shot most of the first film and shot this film as well. An extraordinary ability to shoot intimate scenes and big action sequences. And here we have the title song, uh, which is uh, synonymous with the Wong Fei Hung series, this, um, which was... Uh, based on a Cantonese folk tune entitled Under the General's Orders and first heard when they had the old black and white Wong Fei Hong Kung Fu movie starring Quan Tat Hing and then uh, James Wong who's a quite a well-known renaissance man in Hong Kong, a composer, an actor, and a filmmaker, revived the song for the first Wong Fei Hong movie, Once Upon a Time in China. And in some versions, uh, as in the version we're listening to now, the song is sung by uh, George Lam in Cantonese. George Lam or Ah Lam who's a popular Cantonese singer and also an actor. Um, he's very distinctive because he's very darkly tanned with a moustache, and not many Hong Kong leading men have moustaches. Um, but there's also another version that you can hear on, this, on the Wong Fei Hong, on the Once Upon a Time in China um, music soundtrack CD, where it's sung in Mandarin dialect by no less a person than Jackie Chan. And uh, so you've got two great versions of this song. And the lyrics are singing really about the importance of becoming strong to defend the nation, not for your personal gain, not for any um, inferior motive, but to, um, to keep the country as a whole strong. And this sequence is interesting as we see Wong Fei Hong, played by Jet Li, is in an unfamiliar vehicle, which is the train carrying him from one city to another. And he's, uh, in the first film we establish him as this very noble, patriotic young man who's coming to terms with the turbulent times that surround him. And here he's, there's the kind of a physical representation of that in that he's in this, uh, and it's expanded on in the, the, the comic sequence that follows where he's coming to terms with the fact that he's traveling in this uh, strange vehicle that takes him across China. And looking out into the, through the windows, he's thinking back to his position as the trainer of the Black Flag Militia, which was the uh, the position, the official position that Wong Fei Hung had in the community in Fatsan, his hometown. He was teaching the militia. And so he's thinking of that at the same time he's trapped in this foreign device carrying him towards an unknown uh, destiny and destination. 
Um, there's actually another print of the film which opens with a recap of the ending of Once Upon a Time in China 1, showing the action sequence, but the, most, most of the duel, or the, the high points of the duel between Wang Feihong and Iron Robe Yim, played by Yam Sai-gun. And uh, Yam Sai-gun, even though he played the main villain, or at least we can say the antagonist in Once Upon a Time in China, also appears in Once Upon a Time in China 2 in, in quite a different role. Character on screen there is Leung Fun, played here by uh, Max Mok, or Mok Su Jong. And the same character, um, who is a standard sidekick to uh, Wang Fei Hong in all the many Wang Fei Hong films. In the first Once Upon a Time in China, it was played by Yun Biu, who's like a, a kung fu brother of Jackie Chan and Samo Hong. And um, the reason I believe Yun Biu did not return for the, uh, for the sequel is because, uh, from what he told me, he had been promised by Choi Hart that the first film really was about his character. And as in the old black and white Wong Fei Hongs, Wong Fei Hong would be in the background and the film was about Leung Fun. Because in the old black and white movies where Leung Fun was normally played by uh, an actor called Chou Datwa, uh, the Chou Datwa would handle most of the action and get himself into trouble for most of the film. And then for the finale, Wong Fei Hong would come out and fight. So that incarnation of Wong Fei Hong, played by Quan Ta Hing, was in the background for most of the film. And Choi Hark had said, well, this is what we're doing here. Yun Biu, you're going to play Leung Fun and you'll be the main player. And Jet Li as Wong Fei Hong will be in the background. And Yun Biu says, you know, like a fool, I believed him. And then when the film came out, it really was a, a vehicle for Jet Li and um, Yun Biu was one of the supporting cast. And I think for that reason, and also because on the, after the success of Once Upon a Time in China, Yun Biu was being offered films uh, where he would be the star in his own right. He preferred to do those than to come back and you know, kind of play second fiddle to Jet Li in yet another movie. Um, and among the films that, that uh, Yun Biu went to make was a movie called, in English, Kickboxer. But in uh, Cantonese, it's called... Uh, uh, and it's about uh, a student of Wong Feihong. And Yun Biu actually uh, stars as the student of Wong Feihong, principally the same role he played in Once Upon a Time in China. But we never actually see Wong Feihong in that movie. We only see Yun Biu as the student of Wong Feihong. And uh, that was shot a little while after this movie. But it was that kind of film that had taken Yun Biu away and, and he wasn't interested in, in, uh, in playing the role again. And Max Mock really made it his own. I mean, he's he's a much, he's not a martial arts actor as such. He was a prolific uh, B movie actor during this period, and um, he he has a much lighter touch to the way he plays scenes. The uh, this kind of comic uh, love triangle, if it's even that. I mean, he's admiring uh, the character of Thirteenth Thirteenth Aunt, 13th Aunt uh, Sap Sam Yi, played by Rosamund Kwan Kwan Chi Lam. Um, and can never say anything about that because there's obviously this unspoken bond between her and Wong Fei Hong. So, uh, but he plays to that very well. And uh, he went on to reprise the role in the next three uh, Wong Fei Hong movies and then uh, in the TV series that Choi Hart produced. Of course, after the, the next film in the series, Wong, uh, Wong Fei Hong number three, Once Upon a Time in China three, uh, Jet Li for reasons um, as yet unclear, I think because of uh, some kind of falling out with Choi Hark and or Golden Harvest Studios or both, decided that he didn't want to make any more Wong Fei Hong films for the time being, and he was replaced by another mainland martial arts actor called Ju Man Jok. And Ju Man Jok took over for two more uh, of the Wong Fei Hong films, for number four and number five, and then in the TV series. But to kind of ease the transition, um, the supporting cast remained the same as had been there in place during the, the Jet Li films. Here we have a, a chance to see the really splendid 
set decoration and the attention to detail that uh, Choi Hart bring, brought to these films and brings to most of the films that he does. And we have a really interesting sense of time and place. It's almost like background becomes foreground because normally in martial arts pictures you have two, a protagonist and an antagonist, fighting against an indistinct backdrop. And the backdrop is indistinct in terms of its uh, detail and also in terms of its time and place and uh, also in, in terms of colour. And uh, what uh, Choi does is basically take that in the foreground and say, no, this, what we're showing you in terms of Kung Fu is an expression of the political mood and the social nature of the environment. So that's just as important. So you see a lot of these shots are really, the, the, it's almost like background in the foreground. And um, I've, I've mentioned in the past that many of the Hong Kong Kung Fu pictures are like uh, watercolours, by which I mean they're kind of rather vague pastel tones. And by comparison, the, the Choi Hark, uh, Wong Fei Hong films are like oil colours in that they're much richer and darker and the palette is much more, um, has much more texture to it. Um, and this is particularly true of the, the first and second films. And I really would have to say, in terms of quality, I'd be hard-pressed to um, claim which is the best of Once Upon a Time in China 1 and Once Upon a Time in China 2. And it's uh, rather than saying one is better than the other, I think you can say they're almost like continuations of one epic film because the second film does, to such a great extent, um, play on the idea, develop the ideas that are expressed in the in the first movie. And here's another, here's something else that was um, understated in the first movie, but expressed quite openly here, which is the fact that um, Sami uh, is a character who's educated in the West and wears Western clothing. And this is a time in which many uh, Chinese of all ages are rising up against what they perceive as Western oppression. And any um, indication or any outward manifestation of Western presence in China, such as clothing, somebody using a camera, as uh, Sapsam Yi does, or playing the piano, or keeping dogs as pets or all these different um, aspects are looked down on and, 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 and they can in, there can be an incitement to riot and to violence. So um, in the first movie, there was kind of a humorous aspect of people saying, well, who's this Western woman when they saw Sapsamyi because she was dressed in uh, foreign clothing? Now we see that she's visibly, physically attacked because of the way she dresses. Here we are at the old uh, Shaw Brothers uh, street set which has been redressed for these scenes. And uh, I think there's a wonderful, uh, it's not irony, but I think it's certainly, uh, it's quite right and proper that these amazing martial arts pictures, which redefine the genre, should be shot on the same land that, where the Shaw Brothers movies were shot, because I think the Shaw Brothers films, unfortunately we can't see many of them today, are, um, were as groundbreaking in their day, particularly the ones um, made by people like Lao Galeng, uh, those films were as groundbreaking their day as the Once Upon a Time in China films are or were in the in the early 90s. Um, and here we have a, a street demonstration, a, like a recruitment drive by the White Lotus cult, which serves two purposes, to raise don money to get donations for their cause and to attract followers and also to incite riot against the uh, the Western powers. And uh, you really have uh, one of, there's an old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. The implication being that for historians, the most interesting times are those where there's the most danger and bloodshed. And in that case, these are for southern China. 
genuinely interesting times because you have conflict not just uh, between Western and Chinese, but among the Chinese themselves, between the indigenous Han Chinese and between the Manchus who've come in and usurp the the Ming emperor and install the Qing dynasty. And there's conflict between these two uh, groups of the population. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the camera is perceived as uh, an instrument of the Western oppressors. So as soon as she fires off her flash, she's in big trouble, and, uh, and in little trouble in big China. And there's uh, Max Mark has to step in and uh, do what he can to defend her. And we're leading up now to, I think, one of the great... It's not an introductory scene because a lot of people have already seen Once Upon a Time in China, but in terms of introducing the character in this film... And, I mean, all the any time I've ever seen this film with a girl... Or they've always kind of had a gasp of breath when Jet Li comes running to the rescue. Because I think that, uh, you know, maybe this isn't politically correct, but feminism aside, all women would really love to be in danger like this. And what they want their guy to do is this. They want the guy to come running over the, uh, the heads of the enemy and just gracefully and powerfully save the day. And leading up now to uh, Yun Mo-ping, the action director for this film, and uh, had worked on the old black and white Wong Fei-hung films, referencing the old films with the use of the fan, which was a weapon that uh, Quan Ta Hing had used. The line there, uh, Fat San Wong Fei-hung, which is how um, Quan Ta Hing had introduced himself. And this movie, this scene, really shows a different style, more grounded, not the extravagant wire work we'd seen at the end of the first Once Upon a Time in China movie, and really shows Jet Li and his skill as a genuine martial arts champion. And very little wise, in the final pose there, the open-handed pose, also referenced back to the Quan Ta Hing, Wong Fei Hung films. And Quan Ta Hing basically said, when asked about that, that he'd invented this pose as less of a challenge, as more as an invitation to somebody else. If you want to attack, attack, and I'll see what your skill is and you'll see mine, rather than a pose that actually implied that Wong Fei Hung wanted to go into battle, wanted to go into action. And uh, I think this sequence here is in terms of just displaying the uh, precision techniques of Jet Li in short-range combat is probably the best sequence in the whole of the Once Upon a Time in China series because many of the other fights do rely on wire work and and all the other wonderful tricks that uh, Hong Kong action filmmakers have devised to enhance the action. Understandably so, because, I mean, you're looking at an industry where for over 40 years they've been making martial arts action pictures. So in the famous words of Bruce Lee, look at that, Arthur Wong there. This is what a wonderful way to state who a character is, standing there with the fan and the flag flapping in the background. But going back to what I was saying, you know, as, a, uh, uh, as in the words of Bruce Lee, a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick. And it's hard to think of ways in which you can film them in a new and imaginative way that the audience will go, gee, you know, I've never seen that before. And um, it's to the credit of uh, Choi Hark and Joy Hark working in conjunction with Yun Mo Ping that in these films, and of course in many other martial arts pictures of this era, they succeeded in showing uh, martial arts techniques and uh, displaying martial arts in a way that had not been displayed before. So let's talk a little bit about the historical Wong Fei Hung because people always ask me about... Uh, the character, and uh, I mean, I myself am a martial arts practitioner, and he's actually my great, great, great grandmaster. So for that, if for no other reason, I've undertaken a certain amount of research into who Wong Fei Hung was. And one thing I found is actually that who people believe Wong Fei Hung to be, it matters more 
in terms of his power as a cultural icon than um, who he actually was historically. Because really very little is known about the historical Wang Feihong. Um, we know that he was a martial arts practitioner living in or around the southern uh, town of Fatsan. He's actually a surprisingly contemporary figure. I mean, he died in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he trained the Black Flag Militia, who were a very patriotic uh, local regiment, who were uh, pro-Ming uh, dynasty. So there was indeed that conflict between the forces of the Manchus and of the Han peoples that I mentioned earlier. And um, what's probably the most important thing about him in, terms, in, in contemporary terms is the fact that among his students was this gentleman called Lam Sai Wing, who was a pork butcher and uh, the subject of the film The Magnificent Butcher, which starred uh, Sammo Hong. And uh, Lam Sai Wing, who'd studied the Hangar Kung Fu style, the Kung Fu system, which was taught by Wang Fei Hong, moved to Hong Kong and uh, opened uh, a martial arts school there, a guan, as we say, a martial arts school in uh, Hong Kong. And it was in an area which is now called Hollywood Road. So I guess it's appropriate that so many movies have been made about Wang Fei Hong because his... His student um, really uh, made, and he, Lam Sai Wing kind of made the name of Wong Fei Hong because nobody in Hong Kong had actually really seen or experienced Wong Fei Hong as such, but they had heard these stories from his student. And I think it's a natural thing if you are the student of a martial arts master that you, when you talk about your own instructor, you will present him in the best light and you'll talk about him in the in the best way. So. Um, the image of Wong Fei Hong grew through the stories that Lam Sai Wing told his students. And among Lam Sai Wing's students was a gentleman called Lao Chan, who was, apart from being a kung fu enthusiast, also a, a respected comedy actor. And uh, he had two sons, one of whom was oh, several sons, uh, the oldest of which was Lao Galeng. Lao Galeng became, in time, the uh, one of the foremost action directors and martial actually a martial arts movie actor at Shaw Brothers. So that lineage came down from the traditional uh, uh, Wong Fei Hong, the real Wong Fei Hong, um, to the films and, of course, to the present day. Uh, Lao Gawing, the brother of Lao Gawing, was one of the action directors on the first Once Upon a Time in China movie. Um, and I want to step in a moment. Uh, well, let's talk a bit more uh, about the historical Wong Fei Hong and uh, this sequence here, which is... Uh, the only scene, uh, one of the few scenes where we really get to see uh, Wong Fei Hong, there's two scenes in this film where we get to see Wong Fei Hong as uh, a healer. And it might seem odd, perhaps, to Western audiences to um, think of the fact that this martial arts master is by profession a doctor. But the two, uh, two professions went hand in hand. It would be very unlikely and un unusual in this period of Chinese history to have somebody who was a kung fu master who was not also a, uh, an expert in medicine. The two were like uh, companion disciplines. You should be able to, if you hurt somebody, you should be able to heal them. And um, so all Kung Fu masters made, no one had a professional Kung Fu school. This is, uh, the actor here, William Ho, is playing Sun Yat-sen, who is a real historical character, who was a doctor, and uh, the founder of modern China, and respected equally by uh, the nationalists and the communists. I mean, he founded the Republic of China. So uh, in this film, we really place... Uh, Wang Feihong within his genuine historical milieu, that there's no evidence that Wang Feihong ever met with Sun Yat-sen. Um, they certainly could have met, and this uh, scenario could have happened. There's uh, Michael Miller there standing up, who's an Australian martial artist and stuntman um, who worked in a number of uh, Hong Kong pictures. Uh, he appears in this movie, in this scene as a doctor, and I think he turns up later as a, as a soldier. 
And he also appeared in the uh, the Wong Fei Hung TV series, which starred Jim and Jerk, where he played like a, a Western boxer. Uh, but unfortunately, there was meant to be uh, more of a fight scene between the two, and for various reasons, it didn't really happen. And uh, Mike Miller actually had to leave Hong Kong. Uh, he had, uh, I think, liver problems. He's, he had dialysis and, and had a liver transplant. So um, he's a great guy. So all your please give out your best wishes to him. He's back in Australia now, and hopefully he'll be returning to do action films when he makes recovery from, from his illness. But um, there's uh, always a, a challenge in Hong Kong films of finding quality Western actors to uh, appear in, uh, in movies, and he was one of the better people. And this is a, a demonstration. I, I'm pretty sure that the hand that's bringing in the needle is not actually the hand of Jet Li, that it's a stunt hand of a, uh, an acupuncturist. And in fact, probably the limb is not the limb of Max Mark either. So that's a little insert shot to demonstrate the... Uh, this always reminds me of a scene in Young Frankenstein when uh, uh, Gene Wilder does, does the same trick and cuts off the circulation. Um, but the payoff isn't quite like this. And now you see where they wanted uh, a stuntman for that role. And that's the old uh, uh, arrow on a wire gag, which goes back to the old Shaw Brothers era. You actually put the put a wire down, and then you fire the arrow down the wire, and the wire is like a piano string, so it's virtually invisible. And you can even do it with burning uh, arrows as well. But that means that you can have somebody really quite close to the incoming arrow, and they'll be perfectly safe. Like with Max here, it looks like he's gonna his ears burned off, but um, because the the all of the arrows are firmly attached to wires, he's safe unless he moves his head, and uh, that has happened. But uh, in this instance, I think he was okay, and. Um, we, we have a, a further example here of the anti-Western sentiments and this uh, congress of uh, Western doctors being attacked by the White Lotus cult members. And uh, again, uh, a continuation of a theme from Once Upon a Time in China where uh, there was a kind of understated antagonism. And obviously by the time of the events in the second film, it's become more outspoken and, and the, situa the political situation has worsened. And Sun Yat-sen has actually been depicted in a number of Hong Kong movies. And normally in Chinese films, he's depicted with great respect because uh, he was indeed an, emancip an emancipator and a great thinker and somebody who's still held in high respect by uh, most Chinese people as the father of the nation. And, of course, his revolution and his foundation of the republic was um, began in Hong Kong, which is why uh, one of the reasons that uh, Hong Kong is always regarded as a, a very... given its geographical position and its size is regarded as a very important uh, uh, place in the, in the scheme of things in terms of the development of China as a whole. The, the whole of the, the, the foundation of the public, which led to the, the current uh, regime, started in Hong Kong. This also happened in the first movie. There was a scene when uh, uh, Rosamund Kwan, was, uh, the character of Sub Yi, was actually changing and is spied on by, uh, by Leung Fun. And in this movie, it's actually... Uh, Wong Fei Hung, who accidentally stumbles in on her. And uh, I must say, you know, Rosamund Kwan, I don't know that in terms of range of roles that she could play was a great actress or is a great actress, but um, she had that luminous beauty and particularly the, the attribute, I think, that maybe somebody, when you're off camera, looks quite um, ordinary in a sense, but is illuminated on, on film. And she certainly has that. And, uh, and I like the arc of the love story between her and Wong Fei Hung, which we, we see more of later. This scene is a real bravura Choi Hark sequence where he, uh, instead of going for the obvious thing, which would be to have a canto pop ballad or a piece of um, classical music, has this stock figure, the blind 
um, Uruwu player who's singing a Chinese folk song about the turbulent times. And it's just this juxtaposition of images. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the advancement of the plot. But it gives such texture and background to this place that you really believe you've travelled with Wong Fei-hung to this environment and that you are you know, privy to the political turbulence of the times. Beating the ghost there, that's actually a ceremony. People still do that in Hong Kong. They go to a temple and they, 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 they take these paper uh, charms and beat them and it's meant to beat their enemy. The bride there going off to uh, to be sold, and uh, opium smokers. It's really capturing and burning of the flag, burning of uh, a foreign flag. This is really is capturing the different aspects of life in southern China, in the turn of not last century but the century before. Um, and it's very unusual for a martial arts picture. I mean, I always say about these films that they were the first martial art movies because you could actually take out all of the kung fu fighting from the film and replace it with something else, even people shouting at each other or firing guns or um, dancing with each other, and you would still have a very strong film because the imagery and the storytelling is so strong. It doesn't rely on martial arts. Martial arts adds another level of um, energy and, and visual excitement to the film, but it's not what the movie is about. The movie is really about, all three films are really about identity and about the present coming to terms with the past and looking towards the future. And if you consider these films were made um, in the 1990s up towards 1997 and this major epoch in the history of Hong Kong, those issues were very much to the fore of everybody in Hong Kong, um, including myself. I was living in Hong Kong at that time and nobody really knew what was going to happen in 1997, this kind of pre, pre-millennial catastrophe when uh, the uh, Hong Kong was... Uh, no longer to be a British colony, was not going to have like the the protection of England and as such, and to be returned to China. Here we introduce the man who will be the antagonist of the film, uh, General Yan, who's played by uh, Donnie Yen, Yen Chi Dan, uh, an old friend of mine and uh, a terrific martial arts actor. We'll talk more about him and his career later. But uh, what I find um, refreshing about this movie is that normally he was used in other movies specifically for his martial arts skills. And in this film, he's actually given a part to play, and, and, and Choi Hark really knew how to bring an acting performance out of him to, to such an extent that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor the following year for his performance. And uh, that's quite unusual. Kung Fu actors don't normally get um, nominated even or win prizes for uh, in the acting categories in films. Normally they're just reserved for the action choreography um, and if you look at the career of Jackie Chan he's actually been nominated and won only a few times in throughout Asia for in the active for best actor for his films because martial arts pictures are not regard, regarded normally as movies with great acting or indeed movies which are great expressions of cinematic art so in that sense I think uh, Once Upon a Time in China set a new trend and many of the movies produced in the next couple of years many of them with the involvement of Choi Hark uh, went against that trend and demonstrated that you could make a film that was terrific in every way from the music to the casting to the light to the cinematography and editing and you had great martial arts as well but if we go back to um, the real the real life Wong Fei Hong, um, in a way, uh, it's good that we don't know much about Wong Fei Hong. And for many many years, it was believed there was no photograph and no drawing extant of the face of the real Wong Fei Hong. So nobody knew what he looked like. In a sense, this was good because it meant that he could be reinvented to fulfill the demands of uh, each generation of, of Hong Kong people. And from the 50s through to the 70s, he was Quan Ta Hing, and Quan Ta Hing was synonymous with Wong Fei Hong. 
Quanta Hing was a, a Chinese opera actor and a master of the White Crane Kung Fu style who was um, a perfect choice to play the role and developed the character over over 70 black and white films. And um, he was um, the stern patrician, the Confucian uh, noble who really brought uh, a sense of order to what was then a turbulent time because you had uh, the worst rioting in Hong Kong history in the uh, in the 60s. And um, that was when people wanted to go to the movies and, and see a sense of continuity and, and see some a hero who embodied Confucian values, Chinese values. And certainly, Quan Ta Hing as Wong Fei Hung did that. Then in the 70s, you had a more mischievous interpretation of the character from Jackie Chan and also in the... because uh, he was starring in the movie Drunken Master where you saw uh, Wong Fei-Hong as a mischievous young boy. And uh, let's just look at this moment here. You see one of the few moments where Jet Li really shows some technique that, uh, that, look, that approximates the Hungar style, the southern Chinese martial arts, that the real Wong Fei-Hong um, was a master of. Because Jet Li himself is actually a master of uh, northern Chinese martial arts. So there's sometimes, a, I would say, a dichotomy between the skills that he has as a martial artist and in terms of the historical Wang Feihong, the, the techniques that one would expect Wang Feihong to use. So here we hear, see um, the actual grappling hand techniques of Hangar, because uh, Yun Ping, who's the action director, is, is a master of all styles. He's not really a martial arts practitioner as such, but he knows every style and knows how to communicate it on screen. And uh, he's, um, that, that, I think, is his strength. And, I mean, he was the action director on The Matrix and more recently on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where, um, of course, style is less important than the visualization of, of, of how you show the movement of martial art on screen. This uh, is another idea continued from the first Wong Fei Hong film, where you may remember um, uh, Sup Sam Yi was actually uh, fitting Wong Fei Hong for a Western-style suit, and she watches the shadow on the wall, and she can't touch his face, so she touches the shadow. And here they're, they're practicing their Kam Na Sao, and uh, she can never dance with him, can never be intimate with him, but she watches the shadows and imagines that they can be this way. Because the, the dynamics of the relationship are that, though they're not blood relatives, she is, by the convoluted uh, relationships that Chinese families often have, his 13th aunt. And therefore, uh, according to tradition, they can never have any relationship other than the fact that he should respect her as a nephew would respect his uh, auntie. So obviously you have this conflict between the social mores and uh, the nature of their feelings for each other. Um, and coming up we have another atmospheric scene introducing Donnie Yen's character. And uh, it's interesting the way that Choi Hark does build him up because normally, as I mentioned earlier, he just basically enters kicking. And, uh, and here we actually see this player who's in the shadows. We're not quite sure at this stage his motivations... And uh, the character is actually not a black-and-white bad guy, good guy. He's somebody pursuing a political agenda which is in line with the government that he serves. So um, you can't really typify him as a stereotypical kung fu movie bad guy. In the first Once Upon a Time in China, we had a, a string quartet, and here we have a whole string section. So as ever, Choi Hark's expanding on the ideas from the first film to the second, and they're actually playing the same piece of music. And last time they were just playing in a restaurant, and here we actually have uh, Western people performing these kind of courtly dances. 
I don't know where they found so many ballroom dancers. Uh, it's very hard finding Western extras who can walk straight and chew gum at the same time. So full power to the casting director. And we're about to go right into the nest of the, the local Manchu officers. And I don't often mention costuming, but if you look at the robes here by uh, wardrobe master Chao Kok Poi, uh, the detail in the embroidery is really wonderful. Look at that shoulder there, which is very prominent in the shot. Here we see Donnie Yen and coming around to see no one, none other than Yam Sai Gun, who was the villain of the main fighting villain of the first movie. So here you see them face to face, the main fighting antagonists of Once Upon a Time in China 1 and Once Upon a Time in China 2. Um, obviously, there's a limited number of actors. You could, there's Dion Lam on the right there, who's a prominent action director in Hong Kong films and just did some fine work on uh, Exit Wounds with Steven Seagal. And he's uh, working, he worked on The Matrix as well with Yun Ping. So this is an early collaboration between the two. Um, Yun Ping obviously made his name in the West with his work on The Matrix. And uh, Dion was himself an action actor and stuntman for many years and a choreographer and kind of a, an additional member of the Yun's action family. Yam Sai Kun is a magnificent actor and he did a great job in the first film. And it's quite common practice in Hong Kong that they don't really mind actors coming back in second and third films in the same film series playing totally different characters. I mean, given the geography of Hong Kong, there is a relatively um, shallow talent pool. So you do end up going back to the same well again and again to find talented uh, character actors. And so uh, people sometimes complain, oh, you see the same faces again and again. And the reason for that is that um, you need to maintain a certain level of consistency to the performances. So there's only a certain number of people that you could uh, you can hire, and uh, if you, the juxtaposition here is between the the courtly dancing happening next door and like the political maneuvering happening behind closed doors, where you see the actual physical movements between the performers um, reflects the uh, the mannered dancing of the ballroom dancers. And we were talking about the historical Wong Fei Hong. Um, the last of his several wives, Mok Wai Lan, outlived him by many years and was actually uh, a player on many of the early black-and-white Wong Fei Hong films. Unfortunately, to the best of my research, none of the films in which she appeared have survived. But she also worked behind the camera as a, as a choreographer. And there's a memorable photograph shot on the first day of filming of the first of the black-and-white Wong Fei Hong films, showing both Mok Wai Lan and also uh, a, a gentleman who's identified as being the son of Wong Fei Hong. So presumably this is the son of uh, Wong Fei Hong and Mok Wai Lan, and that implies that there may well be uh, ancestors of Wong Fei Hong who still live in Hong Kong. But if they do exist, they've certainly never capitalized on their family name and uh, are not active now in martial arts or movie circles. But uh, in the last year, there has been a movement of people who have brought out a photograph that is, purports to be that of um, Wong Fei Hong. And uh, this might not sound like any major revelation, but it's, uh, I guess, in kung fu circles, it's a bit like the Turin Shroud because uh, Wong Fei Hong has become, I would say, if not a god, then at least a, a demigod or uh, a legendary figure in, in, the, in the Chinese martial arts world. And the fact that the people are fascinated to see what he actually looked like. And I've seen this photograph, and I don't know... Uh, why it would have been hidden for so many years. But one thing that struck me was that the man in the photograph bears an uncanny resemblance to the man in the old black-and-white picture identified as the son of Wong Fei Hong, which leads me to wonder if perhaps um, it's actually a picture of the son rather than the father because they are almost identical. 
And recently, uh, within the last year, there was uh, Fatsan, which is now quite a prosperous southern Chinese town, has decided to honor its most famous native son. And they now have a, a Fatsan Wong Fei Hong Museum. And the representatives came to visit me in Hong Kong and showed me the photograph. And uh, they were adamant that this is actually the uh, the face of Wong Fei Hong. And they actually had a bust made and uh, they had many duplicates of it. And they gave one to me, which, is, which I was very proud. Um, they named me to be like the overseas representative of the Fat San Wong Fei Hong Museum, which I'm glad. But I mean, you know, I, I think I hope I have done my part to uh, spread the word about Wong Fei Hong as a, a folk hero for our time. And indeed, doing so now with this with this DVD. So um, if anybody does travel in China, go to Fat San and you can visit the Wong Fei Hong Museum and uh, make your own mind up as to whether this is indeed the face of uh, this of the legendary Wong Fei Hong. This is a, an atmospheric scene where we see the result of an attack by the White Lotus cult on a, uh, a mission, and uh, all the missionaries have been killed, and these children have been left orphans. Uh, and the statement that Choi Hark is making here, I think, is about the fact that it, whatever the greater goals of politics, the innocents are always... The first casualty of war is innocence, and the, the first people to suffer innocence, like these children we see here. And I, I think he maybe uh, is relating this to his own experience because he was a child of Indochina and spent you know, was born there and spent his formative years there in a time of very of great hardship about which he's been reluctant to speak openly, but I think informs a lot of his work. And um, we see in there both the f fact that he reveres the innocence of childhood and also that he has an abhorrence of um, the, the horrors that can be inflicted on people by anybody with a political doctrine which allows for no human feeling. So even these films, I mean, not to give too deep an interpretation of them, are really about people fighting to come to terms with uh, their own humanity in the face of um, political and social pressures. Um, and I think this is a recurring theme in the work of Choi Hark. And I mentioned the, the changing faces of uh, Wong Fei Hong, who for many years had no face, so he could look like anybody. And uh, in for, for most of the... Uh, the latter part of the uh, 20th century, he looked like Quan Ta Hing. And then in the 70s, we had uh, Jackie Chan playing the role in Drunken Master, and he brought this mischievous element. Um, there's also uh, a, a couple of neglected films, Challenge of the Masters and uh, a Marshall Club, which were Shaw Brothers films, featuring the young Wong Fei Hong. And they were really prototypes for, not just for uh, uh, the Drunken Master films, but also for Wong Fei Hong, uh, the first Wong Fei Hong, the Choi Hart Once Upon a Time in China movie, because they depicted a, a young Wong Fei Hong who's a noble, upright young man who's uh, living in complicated times. They were played more for comedy but uh, uh, interesting depictions of Wang Feihong and evidence that he really is a perennial Chinese folk hero who can be reinterpreted in many different ways. And when he was reinterpreted by Choi Hark, it was at a time when Hong Kong faced uh, its greatest challenge, so it perhaps needed its greatest hero. Um, and this took the form of uh, Wang Feihong, and, uh, in, played by Jet Li, and it's the role really Jet Li was born to play. 
This actor there is uh, uh, David Chang, or Kung Da Wei, who is a veteran Shaw Brothers actor, mainstay of the uh, the Shaw Brothers martial arts movies. And uh, films of his that have been distributed in the West include New One-Armed Swordsman. And probably the most widely seen of his films is Legend of the Seven Gold Vampires, also known as The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula. And he was a, a, a really uh, one of the top leading men during that era of uh, Shaw Brothers movie making. Shaw Brothers, the most prolific and uh, probably the most the, the most fully realized filmmaking entity the world's ever seen. They own the actors, they own the directors, the studios, the facilities, and they own the theaters. So uh, it was a system that really was never allowed in the U.S. Uh, after the antitrust laws came in. But Shaw Brothers continued and they, they dominated the industry for um, the 60s and the 70s. And David Chang formed a memorable screen, many memorable screen partnerships with Dick Long, who uh, many people will remember best for his role in A Better Tomorrow, which was actually produced by Choi Hark and directed by John Woo. Um, and many of the... Uh, people who made a name for themselves as kung fu actors went on to become uh, successful and respected dramatic actors when the kung fu boom the kung fu movie boom kind of faded away in the uh, in the early part of the 70s it was revived of course by Jackie Chan and Sammo Hong who introduced a, a whole new lineup of kung fu movie heroes in this uh, movie, we, we get to see other sides of Wong Fei-hong because uh, he obviously is known as somebody who is a martial arts master and who has the capability of handling situations, challenges in a, in a one-to-one confrontation. But what's more important is that he can also solve social issues, social problems, which is what we see him doing when he takes these children under his wing. Here is the formal introductory scene for uh, Donnie Yen, which was actually co-choreographed by Donnie and uh, Yun Mo Ping together. Um, Yun Mo Ping is the man who discovered Donnie Yen and uh, introduced him to the film industry. The connection was that uh, Yun Mo Ping's sister was a student of Tai Chi, of Tai Gek Kun, under Donnie's mother, Bao Sim Mark, who's a, a famous martial arts master who's based in Boston, Massachusetts. So Donnie himself was uh, born in Canton and uh, raised in Boston, spent his formative years in Boston. He was in Hong Kong for a while, but then kind of made his, uh, cut his teeth on the mean streets of uh, Boston's combat zone and uh, developed extraordinary martial arts skills. Uh, I always think of him as being like the real-life equivalent of Fong Sayuk because in the Fong Sayuk films, Fong Sayuk's mother is a martial arts expert and um, Fong Sayuk's father is a scholar. And the same is true in Donnie's family. His mom is a kung fu expert and uh, the father doesn't really practice martial arts as such but is a poet and a scholar. So in this sequence, we, we want to introduce the character of General Yan as being a, a worthy foe physically for Wong Fei-hong. And uh, the first film had really shown off the physical hand-to-hand fighting skills of, uh, of Wong Fei-hong, in the finale anyway. And so here we get to see the skill of both men at using the guan, the Chinese pole. And it's uh, a match of, of wits and will. And, of course, there's an extra uh, element to it in that because uh, the Donnie Yen character is a nobleman, he cannot be hurt by a commoner. So while they're fighting, uh, Wang Fei-hung is actually at a disadvantage in that uh, he, is, he cannot inflict any serious injury on his opponent because of the, the social conventions of the time. 
And this sequence really, I think, set a new level, even from the first movie, because after Once Upon a Time in China was a huge hit, um, a lot of copycat films went into production in Hong Kong. So when Once Upon a Time in China 2 was being devised, they realized they really had to find kung fu players who could demonstrate skills superior to those shown in the first film. And they certainly delivered with this sequence. And uh, it's, if you look at the, the background, there's this kind of the stylized background of the blood-red walls it, implying that there's a... And you see here is an interesting point that the pole has been knocked down uh, by the general and the pole that Wang Feihong hit doesn't break right away. There's a delayed action. So it implies that there's another level of kung fu ability that Wang Feihong has that the, uh, the general does not. And uh, they actually delay that revelation here as they're speaking for a few moments. And then a couple of uh, the guards go and inspect the pole, thinking that probably uh, this proves the general is more skilled than Wang Feihong. And then go over and they touch the pole and it's been shattered from within. So the implication is that uh, Wang Feihong's kung fu is at another level compared to the general. And we find this character is, is, is not just adept at martial arts but also at politics because uh, initially it's not clear whether General Yan is, a, is a, uh, a good guy or a bad guy because he shows some sympathy for Wang Feihong's intention, which is to find a new home for these children and find some way to protect the people who have been uh, oppressed by the, the, white, the supposedly patriotic White Lotus clan. So I think it was this element of the character that got recognition when uh, Donnie was, uh, was nominated for, an, uh, for Best Supporting Actor because the part didn't just call for somebody who can kick and punch, but it called for somebody who could provide the nuance of this uh, political officer, this political animal who's probably as uh, fluid in terms of his allegiance as he is physically. Um, but going back to uh, talking about Wong Feihong, I mean, he's uh, the difference I see between him and many other martial arts heroes is that there's uh, a sense there of a man for all seasons because he's somebody, yes, who has physical skill. He's also somebody who places great weight on spiritual development and on proper ways of behavior, of etiquette in all walks of life, in, in wherever you find yourself in society. He's always a martial arts master, even when he's not fighting somebody. Whereas both in movies and in the real world, we often find people who are very adept at martial arts but don't really apply the same value system to their everyday lives. And I'm not saying that everybody, myself included, can necessarily um, you know, live to those high standards, but at least the Wong Fei-hung character, as epitomized by Jet Li, is somebody who says, this is the the moral and right way to live your life if you are and, and to be strong internally and externally. So, I mean, if people want to have heroes in life, I think Wong Fei-hung is a tremendously powerful icon and I can see why he's been a, such a, a perennial folk legend in, in uh, Chinese circles because he does fulfill a need for people to have guidance in often uh, troubling times. Uh, this sequence uh, uh, again plays to something we saw in the first film with the fact that quite often uh, with the colonial powers ruling large sections of China, uh, Chinese cannot make themselves understood. So here you have a standoff um, between them and these guards at a British embassy. And, of course, not, neither of the Chinese can speak uh, uh, English, even though this is China. And uh, there's a line in Fist of Legend, uh, uh, 
Zheng Mo Yinghong, the remake of Fist of Fury that Jet Li made, when he goes to visit the Japanese dojo and somebody says, you know, you, you can't come in here, and he says, I'm Chinese, and on Chinese soil a Chinese can go anywhere. And I think Jet really has taken on that mantle of being a patriotic hero. And uh, here's David Chang's character, Kung Da Wei's character, steps in and obviously can speak English and, and pave the way. He uh, He's uh, one of the aides to Sun Yat-sen and also uh, a medical doctor and more a man of the world than Wong Fei-hung. Um, Wong Fei-hung is always depicted in these films as being a man slightly out of step with times. Um, here we have uh, the first reference, one of the ongoing references in the series to Christianity. In the first film, uh, the opening sequence, we see priests walking through the streets singing hallelujah, and now we're inside a Christian church. And in the first film, we uh, had a, a priest who's a witness to a crime who comes forward to protect Wong Fei-hong. So the implication is that regardless of race and religion, there are good people in every background. And... Uh, here, again, the Chinese come in and confront this alien religion that has been brought in by the foreigners and taught to uh, Chinese children. There was always a, uh, a joke in this era that people became rice Christians because the missionaries would actually f cook and feed cook uh, rice and feed the, their, their new flock. So there were people starving in, uh, in China who would come and be Christians just so they could be fed. And uh, an interesting line there where Wang Feihong asks, why do Westerners always crucify their, their gods? And it's, uh, again, not necessarily the most profound of concepts, but really extraordinary to see such ideas being expressed in what is, in, um, in nature and structure, essentially a martial arts movie, a kung fu picture. And the idea that people would actually take time out from the, uh, the, the, the gung fu to have a discussion about philosophical and political issues is uh, a, a concept that was really devised by Choi Hark and introduced in the first Once Upon a Time in China movie. Here we have the, the embassy under attack and the man at the foreground there is Paul Fonorov, who's a Fonbolog, who's a, a Mandarin and Cantonese speaker, speaks both languages far better than I do and reads and writes Chinese and uh, is a long-time critic of Hong Kong films. He's a film reviewer and the author of several books on the subject and has a massive collection of uh, Hong Kong movie memorabilia. He's fascinated, I think, by the the Shanghai era of, the, of Chinese filmmaking when the industry is based in Shanghai and by the, the, like the 1930s Hong Kong movies. And... Uh, Though he's playing a British uh, officer in this film, he's actually an American from Cleveland, so he has an American accent when he speaks English. So he was dubbed for this film. Um, and he's often cast as these uh, antagonistic characters in films. Westerners tend to be either police, police inspectors, kind of uh, stern police inspectors, or drug dealers, or um, uh, idiotic tourists. So uh, anybody who's based in Hong Kong and wants to be in films ends up getting cast in those roles. But Paul did a book of reviews, and I have to say, for somebody who's uh, made a living out of working in uh, in Hong Kong, he didn't really like many of the films. He had a whole book of all the reviews, all the films he'd seen for like a 15-year period, and I think he liked about five of them. So uh, uh, he obviously sets a very high standard for Hong Kong filmmakers. Sun Yat-sen's character uh, to the fore there, and... Uh, 
the actor William Ho uh, is uh, an esteemed mainland Chinese actor. He's actually from, from, from China and uh, achieved his greatest fame on television. He was the star of a series, uh, My Fair Princess, which um, it was, it was a huge hit uh, everywhere in Asia, everywhere in Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and China a couple of years ago and introduced uh, uh, a girl called Chu Mei, who's uh, the lead in the new Stephen Chow Sing Chi movie, uh, which is called Shaolin Soccer. And uh, the Burning Cross outside is kind of a twist because normally I think we associate Burning Crosses with the Ku Klux Klan and the oppression of black people or at least non-white people by uh, white supremacist groups in the deep south of America. So Choi Hark subverts the image and uh, brings us this Burning Cross outside an embassy in turn-of-last-century China. And out the front of the building, they're actually uh, incinerating Westerners in effigy. The, we don't often mention or talk about the, the contribution uh, made to films of this caliber by the art director or production designer. Um, the two roles kind of blend into each other. Basically, the person who finds the props and the settings and the, the backdrops for all the sequences in the film. And it's the kind of thing where when it's done well and it's uh, done at this level, you don't notice. When it's not there, a film looks cheap. And for this movie, they had Eddie Ma, Ma Punchu who's a, a veteran of the industry and did a fantastic job of recreating all the, the detailed nuance of, uh, of uh, this period in uh, Chinese history. And uh, again, I don't think audiences, in their, when they're caught up in the plot, as all of us are when we watch this kind of film, normally take time to notice the de the, this attention to detail. And it's one of the wonderful things about having DVD is that you can really look at different, in multiple viewings of the film, appreciate different aspects of the, the filmmaking process. And I certainly think both uh, Once Upon a Time in China and, uh, and its sequel, the movie we're looking at now, are fine examples of the way that you can really uh, have a strong narrative and fantastic martial arts action sequences and every other aspect of the film is also uh, very, um, you know, at the highest level as well. And here on the soundtrack we hear Under the General's Orders again, uh, really for the first time played in its uh, in all its glory, the Wong Fei Hong theme. And this time it's not illustrating his um, martial arts skill, but his skills as a Chinese doctor. And the this actual this version of the music is the one that was heard back in the old uh, Quan Ta Hing films. So it, it refers back to that patriarchal Confucian interpretation of the character. And here we have Wang Weihong working side by side with Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen had been an expert in, in Western medicine. So uh, he's demonstrating Western surgical techniques, whereas Wang Weihong is demonstrating acupuncture and uh, the skills that have been developed in the, in the East. And uh, this exchange of ideas. But it's fascinating to have uh, a juxtaposition between Wong Feihong and real-life historical characters. God, I hate watching people get injected. I just hate needles in a bad way. That's why I never go for acupuncture. But uh, they continued this in the, in the other films. In, 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 the fourth, in the third movie in the series, we get Jet Li meeting the Dowager Empress, who was uh, obviously probably the key political player in the China of this era. And then when we go to Wong Feihong number six... 
though I know Jet Li re- resists calling um, Wong Fu- Once Upon a Time in China and America Wong Fei Hung number six. It was the sixth film in the series. We have uh, Wong Fei Hung meeting Billy the Kid. So uh, this was an ongoing theme. And I've always you know, felt it was a shame they couldn't do one more and actually bring Wong Fei Hung to London during this period of English history and uh, have him meet some different characters in 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 England maybe they yet will um there's an interesting story there because Sun Yat-sen was actually uh traveled to London during his campaign to get political support internationally for the formation of the republic and was um uh, kidnapped and uh, there's a setting there I think for a story which would actually continue the events seen in this picture um you see uh the invasion now of the uh of the embassy by the White Lotus clan. And um, it's really the shoes on the other foot because in the first film, we we saw the Chinese uh, people being blown away by Western so- gunmen, by Western soldiers. And uh, now the, there's a, a change. Obviously, the, there's a reversal of fortune here where the Westerners are under siege. And again, it's a point well worth making that if you're uh, caught in the line of fire, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, if you're on the wrong side of politics, then uh, you know a bullet is still a bullet. And in this film, the the ideas that were developed in Wang Fei Hong and Once Upon a Time in China uh, are further developed and expanded on. And as ever, Choi Hart puts together a team of scriptwriters. And uh, if you look at the, the the lineup, it's almost like a Hollywood movie. You have the screenplay by Lei Wei Man, and uh, created by Chao Gin Mun, and then the scriptwriters are Choi Hart himself and. Chan Tinsun and uh, Cheng Tan. Cheng Tan, we're led to believe, has the English name of Charcoal, and um, your guess is as good as mine. But he had a team of writers, and the, the way that he works at the film workshop is basically everybody gets to throw in ideas, and um, they uh, come up with an, an overall structure for the film, and then he refines it and refines it, and he's famous for having many different uh, ventures happening at any given time, Choi Hark, as both director and producer. The exchange there of the the watch, which is uh, going to be a, a, a symbol of the bond between Sun Yat-sen and uh, and his aide. Um, the watch, uh, the the idea. This watch is a recurring motif in Choi Hark's films. And actually, I remember it. Um, the la- a, a fob watch like that being a key element in the Spaghetti Westerns, and particularly in uh, For a Few Dollars More, the second of the Dollars series, where uh, the watch had a sentimental value. And uh, these movies, I think, are unreservedly sentimental. And partly, I think that's the appeal, because a lot of uh, Hollywood-made martial arts pictures kind of wink at the audience and in doing so, give up any genuine emotion. But the the characters in these films tend to live their lives and play their emotions wholeheartedly, and audiences respond to that, and not just in Hong Kong and China, but around the world. And I think that's what audiences really responded to in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, above and beyond the uh, the, the martial artistry and the skill with which the film was made. It's uh, such a full-blooded piece of entertainment. Um, if nothing else, it showed me how few Hong Kong movies really had penetrated the mainstream overseas market. Because good though Crouching Tiger was, I don't think it's any better as a film than this film, or indeed Once Upon a Time in China, or Dragon Gate Inn, or any of the other Choi Hark produced and directed martial arts pictures of this era. 
Here we have uh, Donny speaking English or dubbed into English as uh, as he's uh, in this confrontation with the ambassador. But he actually speaks fluent American accented English in real life, so there was no real need to to dub him. But the whole of this movie is dubbed, as were most of the movies of this era. And uh, this uh, came about because many of the actors were speaking different dialects in Hong Kong film. You'd have Cantonese and Mandarin and um, different dialect speakers. And so it became increasingly difficult to uh, dub some parts and leave the others with sync sound. So it became the norm that uh, you'd have all the speaking parts would be dubbed. And here's an interesting shot that shows the collaboration between Arthur Wong and Choi Hark off to good advantage. They decided to cut the uh, the telephone lines, so Donnie stays in the middle of the frame and we see the uh, he's obviously it's set as a powerful figure against the backdrop of the embassy and then coming into really uh, deceptively simple shot, he's uh, giving his orders for what will be his betrayal of the, the Western people under his uh, charge, under his command, and the camera zooms in. And then the shot that ends the sequence is actually this close-up shot of the iris of his eye taking in the, the chaos of the world around him, which um, looks like nothing, but actually is relatively uh, a relatively tricky shot to pull off. And it shows the, the conflicts that are within the character itself. Um, and Arthur Wong is somebody I've worked with a couple of times, um, uh, very closely on the film Gen X Cops, and uh, watched him work on 2080 in Purple Storm. And what I think differentiates is Arthur Wong, uh, Wong, uh, Wong Ok Tai, from his from his contemporaries and from the other from the other cinematographers working in Hong Kong, is the fact that most other filmmakers in Hong Kong have a specific area in which they excel, either grand spectacle or intimate family dramas. But uh, Arthur Wong is somebody who can actually shoot any kind of film and, and any kind of scene, and his craftsmanship is exemplary and his imagination is great. He will always come up with a solution to any problem or any situation. Here we see uh, a few movements of genuine hangar, albeit movements that are performed in a, a kind of comical way by Max Mock. And... Um, this kind of there's the foreshadowing there as um, Sapsami is actually practicing the few movements that she learnt earlier from Wang Feihong because she actually gets to put them in action right at the very end of the movie. So this kind of <laughs> foreshadowing again, I mean, it's very basic stuff, and for an American film, one might not think anything of it. But bear in mind that so many Hong Kong films in this era, the struct really, the script really was constructed as they went along, and uh, there was no sense of having a complete script at the beginning of filming at least not a script that was followed day by day. So having that kind of cohesion and that kind of um, sophistication to the scripting is another element of what makes the Once Upon a Time in China uh, series, the first three films anyway in the series, uh, quite remarkable. And uh, we're now establishing the relationship between Jet Li and... and uh, Moxu Chong. And there were complaints at the time the original film was cast that Jet Li was too young to play a Wong Fei Hong who was already a martial arts master. And though technically that would be correct, in that era of uh, Chinese culture where respect for your elders was such a key element in society, it's unlikely a man of his young years would become a martial arts master and be called Sifu, by, which is like fatherly master, fatherly instructor, by older people. And uh, the reason it works is Jet Li's performance, that he brings to it um, such dignity 
and uh, such grace that you accept him as a martial arts master. But also he is somebody who, though totally skilled in physical confrontation, in emotional matters, as we saw in the scene preceding this, is really uh, in at the deep end and he's no more gifted than any of us clumsy men. And uh, Max's punishment is to sit in horse stunts, which is one of the key positions of the Hungar style, as any m practitioner of southern Chinese martial arts will tell you. And there's a wonderful atmospheric uh, introduction to the invasion of the embassy by the, the White Lotus. As you see the bodies of these guards and these white figures creeping into the building. So it's really quite eerie and uh, sets up the situation very well and uh, really uh, sets up the White Lotus as a genuine threat even though in the first scene of the movie we saw them coming off second best in a physical confrontation between themselves and, uh, and Wong Fei-hung. And uh, here's Kung Dawa. Uh, Kung Dawei is uh, oblivious to the danger as these, uh, these men sneak through. Notice that they're armed with bows and arrows rather than rifles because, of course, their cult doesn't believe in the power of the gun. They believe that their beliefs uh, make them invulnerable to, to gunfire. So they're armed primarily with swords and... Uh, bows and arrows uh, and here uh, David Chang's character in a meditation really about the conflict between East and West and then uh, he of course is somebody educated and raised in Western culture so he puts his faith in the gun so he's armed with a, a handgun which he uses several times through the film and now the reveal that these guys have actually been uh, been stabbed slow motion there as the as as David Chang grabs the, the stopwatch. And then, uh, always in these movies, somehow um, Choi Hart manages to bring lighter moments out of the very serious uh, drama and danger and uh, the fact that the characters are genuinely in peril. He always manages to bring lighter moments in. And indeed, these terrific visual images like these guards running out with the cross and uh, the lighting of the sequence really adds so much to the atmosphere of the fact that this is a, a, an invasion by fanatics, and it doesn't matter what stripe fanatics are, they're equally terrifying, um, particularly when they threaten the innocents, as they do in this case. And now uh, we'll have the... As soon as the as Wong Fei-hung himself comes into battle, you have the signature soundtrack, the Wong Fei-hung music comes in to accompany him going into battle, which has been the... Uh, which I think has been a, an element of the Wong Fei-hung films since they were first instituted back in the... Uh, in, the, in 1949, when the first Wong Fei-hung film, The True Story of Wong Fei-hung, was shot. And people have said, wow, you know, this character is, uh, has got superhuman martial arts abilities. And that's absolutely true. But, I mean, the reality is that they have just taken the concept of martial arts training one step beyond. And um, this, is, of course, was something that they did in The Matrix as well, but that was justified by the fact that you were in, like, an alternate universe. But here, uh, when uh, Choi Hark was coming up with a new concept for martial arts fighting in this new... Uh, in the new decade, in, this new, in the new time these films were made, he realized you couldn't just have guys standing on the ground kicking and punching each other. So you had to extrapolate from that and say, what if martial arts gave you powers that were just um, a few beats above that you became like an Olympic athlete and even beyond an Olympic athlete, you could perform physical feats that were just on the verge of him, just beyond the possible, um, what would you be able to do? And that became the starting point. So whereas uh, a real martial arts master can jump in the air and kick two people, in these movies, 
with the aid of wires and doubles and all the other things they have, um, expert martial arts experts jump up and kick any number of opponents without having to land on the ground. And uh, here's a, the most inappropriate use of a crucifix since The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. I think you might remember the end of that film. He, uh, he used the crucifix to, to good effect. I think he was warding off the relatives of uh, the woman he planned to run away with. And again, some uh, more rooted action there from Jet Li, by which I mean he's not uh, flying around on a wire. You actually get to see uh, his static, the grace and power of his genuine martial arts techniques. First time we see Wong Fei Hong on a horse. Um, there were horses in the background of the first film, but they weren't involved in the action. And uh, uh, interesting to set a horse encounter, an encounter on horseback, in, inside, because normally these things are played out on the battlefield or on great plains. And uh, again, the, I think the first time ever the use of a crucifix by, uh, by a martial arts hero in a kung fu picture. And Donnie Yen's about to make a, a return appearance. And uh, she mentioned something about Donnie. He was actually the best man at my wedding. And uh, we were sitting around the table. Uh, they have these round tables for Chinese wedding banquets. And uh, Paul Fonaroff was there, the guy that plays the British ambassador in this film. And we had a couple of stuntmen and uh, another Western actor called Mark King. And we all realized uh, midway through dinner, after we had a few drinks, that all of us had been killed at least once in one movie by Donnie Yen, and some of them, you know, myself included, had been killed several times by him, and here we were sitting having dinner with the guy. But uh, because he always, you know, played a good guy, or in this instance, a kind of ambivalent bad guy, we always, and we were Westerners, we always ended up on the receiving end, as indeed um, poor Paul does in this scene, where he gets killed off by Donnie, and uh, he succumbs to, like, the eagle claw strike. Uh, he kicked me through a wall in Circus Kids, so I died that way. And in TV's Fist of Fury, he chops me in the neck. So um, he obviously has a thing about uh, killing off his Western co-stars. But uh, we drank a toast to revenge, and uh, we're waiting for a movie we're going to make when all of us Westerners get together and uh, give him the eagle claw and the throat chop and all that stuff. Hasn't happened yet, but we're, we're working on it. One of my favorite scenes coming up in the series which defines the relationship. Look at, look at Rosamund, isn't she so beautiful in this shot? Arthur knows how to shoot her. And she says to him, I know you think he's your aunt, but you're always the man in my heart. And look at his reaction. He's just the great martial arts master, but he's lost for words because she's dared to come out and say what they've both been feeling. And uh, it's shot in these close-ups, and it's just wonderful. And this is what I mean by people having a luminous nature on camera that belies how they might look in the real world. And uh, also this wonderful dichotomy in the character of Wong Fei-hung between somebody who, in physical terms, is totally adequate and totally skilled and a, a supreme master, but in emotional terms is really undeveloped and has to be kind of... His emotional life has to be stirred by this amazing woman who, unfortunately, in Chinese terms, is his aunt. Um, and it adds another level to the character and adds another level to the film that they develop this uh, the love story. And also there's a conflict because uh, there's a sense of why should... How can we have a love story? How can we have a romantic a romance get in the way of the mission that we have to fulfil politically, which is, uh, in this instance, is delivering uh, a notebook full of names of uh, republic leaders um, to Sun Yat-sen? And so now this shot 
where he calls her by her real name. And she turns back and recognises that he's never called her anything but 13th aunt before. And then she's going to leave and uh, we have this great reaction from Jet Li. And then she's going into the shadows. He's a wonderful actor, Jet Li, and his reaction shot here is, is nice. And the way that Arthur lights this stuff is so good. He has a warmth when he's working in close-up in those kind of intimate scenes. And uh, I have to say, though, she is probably the least effective, least convincing uh, woman dressed as a guy in the history of Hong Kong film. It's, it's, a, it's a, an, a recurring uh, conceit that they dress up women, often fighting women as, uh, as men, going back to the days of Far Lan, I suppose, like in the Disney movie Mulan. And, uh, but I don't think Rosamund's very convincing as a, as a man. Um, she really does have that luminous beauty, no matter how you dress her up and disguise her. You may remember that she was also a leading player in Jackie Chan's film, Police Story. And, uh, and she's been in, you know, a veteran of the Hong Kong film industry. She's faded a bit from the scene in recent years, though she still turns up in TV ads and in ad campaigns for um, beauty products. But in terms of a movie career, she kind of ran out of steam uh, towards the end of the 90s. And I think she, her, her, the thing about Rosamund is, though she has great beauty, she was not somebody with a great range as an actress. So she was kind of, re she was going to play the ingenue um, in film after film and just basically play these wallflower roles. And uh, obviously that must be frustrating after a certain amount of time. And she moved on to other things. She did have a brief stab at being a singer. Most Hong Kong actors at one time or the other have to have a go at singing, no matter how good they are. Even Jay, in fact, brought an album out uh, quite a few years ago now. But Rosamund Kwan did. I met her in Taipei when she was uh, launching her singing career, but it never really took off. Um, and now we're back at the White Lotus Temple with this uh, sweet little girl. And uh, the little girl with the, with the heavy makeup, that is actually uh, some, a, uh, a character that you see at festive parades and uh, certain times of the year carried normally very a long way off the ground. They normally carry these, these made-up and beautifully dressed little girls on poles. And I guess they never fall off, but it's uh, particularly if you're a parent and you look up, it's quite uh, nerve-wracking. And uh, it's uh, meant to be the embodiment of a specific deity, of a specific Chinese deity. And this uh, this character or this figure is like the the May Queen uh, in, in in Western terms. And these great atmospheric shots from uh, of the of the temple. Uh, we establish at the beginning that it's a place where this legion gathers to celebrate their particular faith and to plot the overthrow of the, the Western powers and the return of China to the Chinese. And um, we established that at the beginning of the movie and now we're back with Wong Fei Hong pretending that he wishes to become a member of the sect. And, of course, the, the sect leaders uh, are not going to be taken in by this and uh, realise and feel this is their opportunity to get rid of their most powerful adversary. And uh, the... The, all the, the movements that you see here, the, the burning of the fu, the fu is the paper parchment, the paper scroll, these are all actual uh, elements of Chinese ritual. The, the White Lotus cult, which was a genuine organization, combined elements of Confucianism, of Taoism, of Buddhism into a mix that was um, easily practiced by the common population and drew most of their popular support from common people who felt disenfranchised by both the Manchu government, and by the increasing number of Westerners and their influence on Chinese society, and a rather fake-looking butcher knife. But uh, 
it's in the in the film it's enough of a threat that now they're going to drive it down into uh, the neck of uh, of Wong Fei Hong, and so at this particular moment he has to go into action. The theme strikes up that uh, the Wong Fei Hong score, and uh, leading into this incredible action sequence, and uh, it's his skill is juxtaposed with the the uh, reactions of David Chang, who's like you know. Uh, concern about the political implications of Chinese fighting Chinese because most of the people in the White Lotus are not evil. They've just been misled by this charismatic cult leader and uh, they are not, they're not the enemy. But uh, now the circumstance is such that uh, we have to see a confrontation of, of a hero against a misguided mob. And uh, this sequence really gets to show the full range of the new choreography. And here's the trademark weapon of Wang Fei Hong, which is the umbrella. This was first seen in the old black and white Wang Fei Hong films, Quan Da Hing always used to use an umbrella. An umbrella in Chinese culture is an example of somebody who's respected, who's like a master of a specific discipline. It also turns up in Buddhist sim, uh, symbolism as one of the, the emblems of, of Buddhism, and uh, the, as well as its practical application for keeping off the rain. An umbrella is also seen as uh, an emblem of warding off evil, and certainly in this instance it's used to that good effect, though I'm sure they got through any number of stunt umbrellas uh, in this sequence. Uh, traditionally, of course, they wish they'll be using like a, a, a bamboo with um, rice paper umbrella. But for the films, and in going back to the black and white films, it was actually a very westernized version of the umbrella that was used. And uh, it's um, in this instance, we really see one man fighting a mob and uh, realizing the the sheer weight of numbers against him and constantly having to change strategy to stay one step ahead of the uh, the enemy that confronts him. And uh, there's also, I think, a political understatement here by Choi Hark that in China, the problem is not necessarily the individual uh, nature of people, but the fact they can so easily, an idea can so easily inspire people to um, to behave in, in, a, in this way. And uh, so you have this this wave of humanity individually they're not bad people but they are just consumed by an idea by the ethics of the uh, the cult the umbrella is destroyed which is a symbol that he's now genuinely in danger and uh, David Chang steps in now with the handgun which is um, ironic really because the main uh, the, the, these white lotus cults the main idea of the cult is that they're impervious to bullets but evidently no one's going to step up and, and get shot to prove that theory. Of course, in, in, his, in history, during the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the last century, the, um, the Boxers believed they genuinely, if they believed in their God, they would not be killed by bullets. And if anybody did fall in battle to gunfire, it was simply because they didn't possess enough faith. So um, they were covered either way. And, of course, uh, there's no recorded instance of anybody's kung fu ability being strong enough to uh, withhold, to, to withstand gunfire. And for those of you not familiar with the, the Box Rebellion, it was actually a real historical event uh, whereby, uh, under the leadership of various cult leaders, large sections of the uh, Chinese youth 
the attack the uh, legations and the the consuls in Beijing in an attempt to drive out the the foreign powers, and they believed they would be able to do so because they were inspired by uh, chi- traditional Chinese deities and therefore empowered with skills far beyond those that the Westerners had. And uh, in this sequence, it's really quite disturbing the way that this mob has been turned into this wave of insanity and uh, great acting by David Chang as he reacts to the fact that, you know, is this the future of the Chinese people? Is this what we must become? And now with this blood on his brow, Jet uh, goes to the next level. Wang Feihong goes to the, the next level, pretending to have been possessed by the, the spirit of the, the god that the White Lotus serve in order to uh, make himself even more formidable as an opponent for these people. And he's claiming that they've actually forbid, they've, they've uh, parted from the true way. And you get a rare chance here to see the weapon skills of Jet Li as he twirls this geem or, or straight sword around. Two kinds of sword in uh, Chinese martial arts, the dou. The dou basically is a knife, and that's the broader blade that you see used by, the, um, by regular foot soldiers and by, and by martial artists. The geem is actually the sword. The dou is like a knife. Uh, a thick-bladed weapon, and the geme is like the epee or the the fencing foil in Europe. So, what the weapon that Jet Li has here is a geme, and um, normally used by gentlemen. And even scholars would would carry a geme as a symbol of their of their nature, but not necessarily for use as a martial arts weapon. Here we have the the martial arts fighters, the leader of the um, White Lotus Clan, come out to do battle, played as I mentioned earlier by Hong Yan Yan who had a long relationship with uh, Jet Li in the, Jet Li in the Wong Fei Hong movies before going on to make a career for himself, both as a character actor and co-leading man and uh, more recently as an action director. Here he comes in through this wonderful burst of blue light and uh, he's got incredible, as you see, these incredible gymnastic skills. And as he summons the spirit of the god, it's uh, an element of the practice that he not touch the ground. And the higher he is from the ground, uh, compared to the people around him, the more pure his uh, transmission is. So uh, this sets up... this. The audience in, in Asia would already know of this. So uh, this sets up the rationale behind the ensuing fight in which uh, Wang Feihong, having dispensed with the, um, the lieutenants of the White Lotus Clan... Um, takes the fight to the to the next level it goes up to the uh, on top of the the piled tables to fight with uh, the leader of the clan and uh, the weapon that the guys were using on the ground by the way was the butterfly knives the short handle blade the wudip do and uh, this is the kind of extravagant martial arts action sequence that you never get to see in anything but a hong kong martial arts picture and uh, makes you realize that uh, when you look at this film, if you look at the other martial arts pictures being made in the early 90s in America, it really makes you realize how really how far behind the choreographers were. And uh, But I remember American action directors and choreographers telling me very seriously that this style of action filmmaking would never sell with the mainstream American market, uh, the mainstream international market, that they still wanted... American-style action with big, muscly guys with guns and uh, big John Wayne punches. And it really took uh, films like The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to prove that that was not the case. And the, the reality is that 
for various reasons of marketing and language, these films have never really been allowed to find an audience in the West. And now that, of course, is not the case, and we have wonderful DVD reissues like this one where um, these films have a chance to find a new audience. As John F. Kennedy said, any book you haven't read is a new book, and any film you haven't seen is a new film. That's an amazing stunt. Look at him go down there. And the great thing about Hung Yan Yan is that as part from being a, a, a capable character actor, he was such an ama- he is such an amazing stuntman. He can do a lot of this stuff. Now you see the juxtaposition that Jet Li's actually at a higher level to Hung Yan Yan's character, which um, means that he's winning the duel because the, uh, the, whoever's highest has the, the highest degree of power. And there he is up at the, the, the signboard, the Chan Pai, and the head of the uh, clan is losing his balance. So he comes up too, and then uh, if they stay at that same level, then they're equally matched. Now they're bringing out this, uh, the, the tapestry there, again, to stop his feet touching the ground. If his feet touch the ground, he'll be depowered. This is the, the principle. But um, in most Chinese martial art movies, the uh, Lotus Clan leaders or the people with this kind of power are, in, in recent years have been depicted as, as, as fakes. And here you see, again, the, the, the slaughter of the innocents as the little girl who led the White Lotus into battle has been hit by a stray bullet. And uh, this is an interesting con- confrontation because on the first film, when uh, Jet was injured, he was doubled for a number of scenes by uh, Hong Yan Yan. And here we actually have the two of them colliding. And these sequences, when you consider the fact that, you know, even though that they are played back in slow motion, actually happen in real time, so the, the, the flying bodies are actually moving very fast indeed. The, the precision, the timing, um, not to mention the courage involved to execute these kind of scenes is really breathtaking. And uh, it really boggles the mind how Yun Ping, after all these many, many years of making martial arts action films, can still come on the set and find something new, something the audience has not seen before. And more to the point, communicate that and uh, find performers who can actually execute the movement that he wants. And uh, Jet, uh, returning to that, uh, the classic open-palmed Wong Fei Hong stance, this action, uh, like many of the action scenes, is, is part of a tapestry, and the, they actually set it within that framework, so it's within the temple with an audience below. So it's not just two guys against a plain background showing off their techniques. There we see the... Uh, the Mo Yingguk, the shadowless kick, which is like the, the classic Wong Fei Hung technique. And uh, it's um, something that's been, is actually a, a part of the Hungar style or the style that uh, was taught by Wong Fei Hung and uh, is also a, a key element of these films. And it's been depicted in different ways in different movies. But in the Wong Fei Hung films, it's kind of in the Once Upon a Time in China films, the Mo Yingguk is uh, this series of kicks performed in midair obviously with the aid of a wire in the, in the real world. And uh, there's some trickery there worthy of Q in the James Bonds. He's got like his fly whisk with a knife in it. A fly whisk is also one of the um, emblems of mystical power in this period. And then taking a header back into the fire and staying there. And then he's coming up, burning. Hon Yan Yan is, you know, must be one of the bravest martial arts movie performers. And... Uh, and Jet too, because, I mean, he's obviously uh, on the receiving end of a lot of stuff as well. And uh, it's uh, now going into slow motion here so that we can highlight the, the grace of the technique and the foot coming up. 
and uh, again, you know, really bringing you into the action so that you juxtapose, you go back and forward between the action in tableau and the action in close-up. And uh, he's, uh, there's a moment towards the end of the battle where Jet believes, where Wong Fei Hong actually begins to believe for a moment that maybe they really have these powers they say they have because uh, David Chang fires and uh, they strike the chest of the White Lotus leader and he seems to be impervious to power. So there's that moment of doubt. Maybe they really have these powers. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of... If they do, then Wang Fei Hong and, and David Chang are, like, on the wrong side. And he flies back. And then, finally, he gets the point. And then, in this next shot, the trickery is revealed, that it's a metal plate. And it's like, you know, the great Oz revealed. And a message, I think, from Choi Hark, you know, put not your faith in princes. Um, particularly, don't put your faith in cult leaders blindly. Don't blindly follow anybody. So now this mass are left without a leader. And it's been proved that this faith in which they've put all of their energy and all their commitment was a sham. And uh, they're left leaderless. And, of course, it's in that environment that dictators of every stripe find their following. And just a footnote to talk about the, the White Lotus cult. They are actually uh, uh, familiar figures in some of the old Shaw Brothers movies. Uh, in fact, there's a film, uh, Fists of the White Lotus, um, which depicts them, again, in a, as, as the, the antagonists of the piece. And uh, in that movie, Lolit plays the, uh, the venerable Bai Mei, who's the head of the White Lotus cult. And Bai Mei, or the white eyebrow monk, is depicted as a Taoist master and the, the great enemy of Shaolin. And so this... Uh, Wong, I remember when I met Choi Hark uh, years before he did uh, the first of the Wong Fei Hong films, and he was talking about his plans, and he said he wanted to find an old black-and-white movie and kind of update it the same way that Giorgio Moroder had updated Metropolis. Because um, I don't know if you remember, but back in the 80s, I think it was, Giorgio Moroder, who was the great Europop uh, maestro, had bought the rights to the, the classic Fritz Lang film Metropolis and done it with a kind of day-glow colours and given it a new soundtrack and got Freddie Mercury to sing on it and all these things. And uh, uh, Choi Hart had seen that, was inspired by it and, and thought, well, you know, he would do something similar, buy up an old movie, maybe an old Wong Fei Hong film or uh, one of the old Buddha Palm movies, a fantastic film, a uh, uh, Hong Kong action fantasy, and do the same kind of treatment, adding in colour and music. And he never did that. And I think that that concept was applied to the old black-and-white Wong Fei-Hong films, and that became, uh, or and the, in fact, the old kung fu movies in general. That became the Once Upon a Time in China series and the other films that he did because, I mean, there was a whole run of movies in this era that were produced by Choi Hark, inspired by um, older Chinese martial arts pictures where he did, in a sense, update them and, and use them as, like, the, uh, the source material, as, like, the etching onto which he drew a, uh, the more um, detailed picture and the contemporary version of these age-old tales. So, um, in a sense, the prophecy did come true. And here we have the tragic death of a patriot as David Chang's character is gunned down by the, uh, the Manchu soldiers. And uh, this key plot point, they have to destroy this notebook and uh, running through these uh, in, in this dying house, which is, I guess, is an interesting play on words that the, he's going to pass away in a dying house. And uh, great 
angle shot here of uh, uh, the action also subtracts away from the fact that Max Mark is actually going to use a double for that quick bit of action where he takes out some of the uh, Manchu troops. Just for those who don't know, the Manchu were actually uh, a foreign race who invaded China with the support of insurgents within China and overthrew the Ming dynasty and um, established the Qing. And most Kung Fu pictures are set around that time of conflict between a uh, usurper race, a, a, a race of or a, a regime that has usurped the, the proper order of things, which is the Manchu-led Qing dynasty, and the Ming, who are still uh, the, the Han people of China. So this conflict is the basis of most of the Kung Fu pictures that you've seen. But in most movies, it's not to the fore. It's basically the background. Though many of the Shaw Brothers films, they actually you see the Shaolin warriors being depicted as being uh, heroes of the Ming fighting against the Manchu, who are normally depicted as masters of northern Chinese martial arts styles, whereas the heroic uh, Shaolin warriors were southern Chinese martial arts style masters. And a chance now again to see the enhanced skill of Jet Li. And the reality is you can't just put anybody into traditional wear and do this kind of action, even though it is enhanced by special effects and wires. Because uh, what makes it work for Jet is the fact that he can do so much himself without any... He is a special effect. He doesn't need special effects. But when you get to that certain point, you believe his character can perform this way. And if you just take a regular actor, character actor, and have him do it, the audience will not accept it. With Jed, I think they do, because they can see what he can do for real. So when uh, the action sequences go beyond the, the possible, it's, it's believable. And now the... Uh, whereas the first fight between uh, General Yan and uh, Wong Fei-hung was really a training match, this is life or death. And as ever with uh, Yun Warping uh, and indeed with Choi Hark, the environment itself becomes a key element in the action. Um, in the old days, two guys would go out on a hilltop in the middle of the New Territories and fight with poles or knives. Here, the, the battle is set in this, uh, in this factory. So you have all these other elements that can be played with and the power of the, uh, the, the stick play between the two men. And... Um, Donnie, of course, was at something of a disadvantage in this because he's wearing the heavy tunic and hat and the heavy costume of a Manchu officer, whereas Jet's in much more, um, the much looser robes of Wong Feihong. And also, during the fight, uh, Donnie uh, sustained uh, quite a bad injury to his temple when a bit of bamboo uh, bounced back and hit him in the eye. And I think it was a couple of years after that that he um, shot Dragon Gate in and actually sustained an injury where a sword cut through his eyebrow, which is considered very bad luck in uh, Chinese. And he actually had some bad luck for a couple of years after that, so maybe there's something to that superstition. But anyway, so um, he sustained that injury doing this fight, which uh, I think is uh, one of the most amazing. People said, oh, well, you know, would have been good to see Donnie kick because his kicking skill is uh, his forte. But the reality is we've seen Donnie doing kicking in, in, in any number of other movies, uh, including Iron Monkey, which is you know probably his finest film. But it's not often you get to see his skill with weapons. And uh, he's somebody with a unique background because he trained in all the traditional Chinese martial arts with his mother and then branched out on his own, training both with American martial arts experts and in China with anybody who would uh, teach him. And he uh, was constantly in conflict with his martial art masters in China because he was uh, looking for new ways to do things and, and wouldn't settle for the constraints of uh, the established way. 
and uh, a telling moment here and, and, and a moment that kind of turns the tide of battle because uh, Wang Feihong uh, reacts to the death of his friend and fellow patriot and then uh, when he goes back into the fray, he's uh, less concerned with giving quarter to his opponent. As I mentioned in the earlier fight, Wang Feihong is forced to hold back because of the social different the social gap between the two of them that uh, the character Donnie plays as a uh, is a, a warlord and I mean is a uh, and a member of the nobility so if he's injured by a commoner that would be mean a severe penalty for not just for Wang Feihong but also for Wang Feihong's family as per the laws of the time and this next sequence incredibly complicated I mean it's hard enough to uh, construct a fight sequence with two men using uh, a single pole at a single time but here when they go into action, the timing necessary to execute the fight with, with uh, double sticks, with these four sticks flying, is really something. And uh, a testimony to the physical skills of uh, Jet Li and, and, and Donnie Yen. And uh, they, again, using the environment to show, to add uh, another level to the energy of the movements and, uh, and also to, uh, to make it uh, uh, different from the many thousands of... Uh, martial arts weapons fights we've seen in the Hong Kong movies over the last 50 years or so and it really is uh, it's staggering to see the grace and energy and you can see now why these films have developed a worldwide cult following when they've been when you've had a chance for uh, western audiences to see this kind of action compared to the more mundane Hollywood martial arts movie no wonder they would choose Jet Li and Donnie Yen over um, any of the guys who were doing films in, uh, in Hollywood and no wonder that those same people called upon Yun Wu Ping and, uh, and Dion and uh, all the others to go over to Hollywood and show them how to give their action sequences the same kind of quality coming back to Max Mark who's uh, burning pages as, uh, as fast as possible. I don't know why he doesn't just throw the whole book in, but I guess that gives it uh, the ticking clock of uh, Wong Fei Hong having to hold off uh, General Lian until he, he gets the chance to uh, escape. And then again, this plays back to earlier where Wong Fei Hong did the kind of delayed uh, bamboo break uh, in the first fight, the bamboo pole didn't break until after he'd stepped away, and now he applies the same technique here. And that's a wonderful shot there of Wong Fei Hong as seen through the uh, the falling uh, uh, falling dust, and uh, the way it, it's uh, a testament to the collaboration between Choi Hak and Yun Wu Ping that uh, in this movie they foreshadow so many things that will be um, the, in the earlier fights in the film they're paid off later in the movie, and uh, just now we saw uh, Wong Fei Hong was uh, demonstrating how he did this bamboo break where he would shatter the bamboo and there's a time lapse between when he strikes it and when it will fall apart and the first time we see the general training his martial arts he's using uh, a length of rope a wet rope to develop his um, skill with the staff so uh, in in the upcoming duel he applies the same weapon so the audience has actually been forewarned uh, as to what his skills are so People don't just develop ability or suddenly demonstrate skill out of left field. And uh, this really shows how there's an, uh, a kind of a, an integrity to the film that Choi Hark and, and Yun Mo Ping have sat down and decided how to intertwine the demands of the characters and the demands of the plot and the, the, the fact that they're making a martial arts action picture. 
So uh, this uh, final duel now, in most films of the genre, after you had the stick fight, that would have been it. But uh, evidently, uh, this is you know not enough for Once Upon a Time in China too. So having had the uh, the show then inside, we now go outside, and this is like when Donnie's character truly becomes terrifying with this uh, length of uh, rope. And uh, you know, I remember speaking to a producer in America who couldn't remember anything else about the film but that the, in the finale for one time it genuinely seemed that the bad guy was going to kill the hero because uh, he was just seemed so formidable whereas I think it's true to say in most martial arts pictures though you might appreciate the physicality of the stars you never genuinely feel that the hero is in danger because from the opening reel I mean this was something that Bruce Lee brought in from the opening reel you knew that the, uh, the, the the martial arts star of the movie was going to emerge victorious. It was how he did it. And that movement we saw just a few moments ago, the twirling around the neck is a classical movement from the wushu, from Mosat, the uh, Chinese uh, traditional martial art that's been... now the, It's now the National Sport of China. It's like traditional martial arts updated for a new century as a performance art. And uh, this was a... a something that on the on the east coast of America, Donnie's mother, Balsin Mark, made popular. And so Donnie himself is expert with all the weapons of, uh, of Wushu and, of course, um, others that he's developed on his own as well. And as he was saying in an interview that I uh, appeared um, on the Hong Kong Legends label, um, it's not the weapon itself, but the man. It's not the, not the implement, but what you bring to it. So as in this instance, a length of rope can be truly uh, a terrifying weapon. And, uh, and another in instance we're going to see here is that uh, the, the old Chinese saying that uh, an inch, that uh, uh, the longer the stronger, that an inch can be the difference between life and death, which is a principle in martial arts. And here is that inch of splinter that was uh, embedded in the neck of uh, the general. And so he dies his bloody death, but... Uh, as you see, he he's uh, the effort of will keeps him upright, even though he's been his neck has been punctured. Reminiscent of the old Zatoichi movies, uh, no, not of Zatoichi of Lone Wolf and Cub, Kazori Okami. There's a sequence, uh, many sequences, but one sequence in particular, where uh, a rival swordsman is killed by the hero, and his neck is just cut enough that there's a, a beat between when he sustains the injury and when the blood comes spurting out. And uh, now we're at the dock with the, uh, the uh, Sun Yat-sen about to set sail for Hong Kong where he will begin the, the, the revolution that will uh, install the, the republic. And now, you see, Sap Sami gets to show off that single technique of grappling hands of Kam Nga Sao that she was taught by Wong Fei Hong. So again, that was foreshadowed way back in the, the uh, first or second reel of the film. And uh, the boat set sail and... We're just in time to uh, for Wong Fei Hung to throw over uh, what will be uh, a key a key element, a key image in the history of China, and he's throwing over the flag of the Republic, which um, to Western audiences probably doesn't really have relevance, but the Chinese audiences it was um, a key uh, image in the history of the the changing of time between uh, a corrupt imperial era and what in the time of republic seemed to be uh, a time of hope. Whether subsequent Chinese politics has borne out that hope or not, 
air I leave in the, the mind and heart of the viewer. But uh, in this instance, anyway, I think there's a certain sense of tragedy in that uh, from this flag flows the hope for a new China, for a, what was then a new century. And uh, we also leave the, um, the love story. It's been advanced a couple of steps, but still not resolved. And that's something that will take place in the third film in the Once Upon a Time in China series. And the uh, last chance to see the beauty of Rosamund Kwan as this uh, steamship sails away. It looks like something that should be sailing down the Mississippi, doesn't it, with that big wheel and sailing off into the, into the sunset. And that's it for Once Upon a Time in China 2. What an amazing film. And one of the very few instances where a sequel fully lives up to and in some ways exceeds the quality of the original. I mean, on every level, as a martial arts picture, as a drama, as a love story, as an example of fight choreography, cinematography, uh, music, uh, Wang Fei-hung number two, Once Upon a Time in China, who delivers. And here's that stirring theme song in the Mandarin version by none other than Jackie Chan, who, of course, himself played Wang Fei-hung in Drunken Master and Drunken Master 2. And uh, for those of you who get hold of the soundtrack, there's actually two versions. There's a Mandarin version with a, a chorus and the Mandarin version sung by Jackie. And uh, the, you can only get the, the George Lamb version, the Cantonese version, on Alam's own uh, CD. So it was never released as part of the soundtrack, primarily because Mandarin is still the, the, the spoken language in China and in Taiwan, which is a big market for any uh, Hong Kong CD release or soundtrack CD release. Um, and it's been a pleasure for me to pay uh, homage to my great, great, great grandmaster in the Hungar style and to maybe point out some aspects of the film. So this is Bay Logan signing off. Um, thanks for listening. It's been a great pleasure to uh, watch this film again with you, and I hope some of the things I talked about were of some interest, and um, I, I hope I'll be doing further DVDs in the future. Thank you. Joy again. Goodbye.